Oh, okay. I've got it. Um, today we're talking from Matthew 21, verses 18 to 27, which picks up um, from where Daryl left off a week or so ago. Um, but just because it was not last week, I'll give you a review of the context. Um, so we've just had Palm Sunday where Jesus enters Jerusalem uh, on a donkey, um, where all the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, um, upsetting the religious leaders, of course. Um, he drives out the money changers and the merchants from the temple uh, courts, which uh, also upsets all the money changers and the merchants. Um, he heals the blind and the lame in the temple. And it, it's worth noting that these guys were normally banned from the temple. Um, they were seen as sinners. Uh, obviously, if you got sick, you know, God wasn't with you, and so you must have sinned at some stage. Um, and we're told that the chief priests and the teachers were fairly indignant at what Jesus was doing. So that brings us up to Matthew 21, 18 to 27. Uh, if you have your Bibles or a device, you can turn up to that, or I'll just read it out. <clears throat> Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree... Uh, where's, my, where's my verse gone? Okay, hang on. There we go. Sorry about that. Um, seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? <clears throat> they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. <coughs> so we're going to talk mostly this morning about the, uh, the fig tree part of that passage. Um, this is the second of Christ's destructive miracles. Um, the first was when he casts the demons into the herd of swine and they rush down the, the hill and, and drown themselves. It's worth noting that neither of these destructive miracles are directed at people, um, just at well, one case animals and at one case a tree. If we read the, uh, the similar passage in Mark, uh, Mark 11, we see that Mark interweaves the cleansing of the temple with the fig tree. In Mark, the series, of in, the series of events is slightly different. Um, so in Mark, they are walking to the Jerusalem. Jesus encounters the fig tree and curses it. They continue to Jerusalem where he cleanses the temple. Um, and the next day when they're walking back to Jerusalem, 
again. They noticed the same fig tree is withered. Um, and that's when they asked the question about how it happened so quickly. So we see that it's not quite the same series as Mark in Mark and Matthew, but that's because we're hearing the account a number of years after it's happened and two different people often will remember the same events in slightly different orders. There's nothing unusual about that. <coughs> there is a similar story in Luke 13, 6 to 9, but it's presented as a parable and not as a thing that has happened. And this is more likely because the disciples gradually grew to understand what the meaning of the fig tree was, as we'll come to talk about. <coughs> the other interesting item that Mark points out in Mark 11, 13 is that it's not the season for figs. Um, now, people who study the Bible and, and try to understand why Jesus was expecting figs, well, apparently it is possible for some fig trees to um, produce small and unpalatable early fruit that appears on the first leaves of some trees. Um, so possibly Jesus was expecting um, those fruits to be there. Don't know. <coughs> But the, what we do know is the tree is cursed and it withers fairly quickly, whether it's over a day or whether it's straight away. It's still a lot quicker than most trees wither. Most trees die over a period of time, um, not instantly. So Jesus initially uses this miracle to point out that the possibilities of prayers of the faithful, if they pray and they're believing. Now, we need to know that we know that this is only for the faithful, not for unbelievers, because Jesus is only talking to the disciples. They're the only people present. So we are, I guess, the believers. So we know that our prayers can be very powerful, but often they're not. Have you noticed that? I remember a long time ago praying that my mother would win this great, uh, this great big block of land up in Queensland on some things she bought a ticket for. That didn't happen. Well, there's lots of reasons why not. Part of the reasons that our prayers are ineffective is that we don't necessarily have the same sort of faith that Jesus was talking about. In Matthew, faith is always presented as a practical, relation, as a practical relationship of trust with God. Often for us, it's an intellectual belief that God can do all this, but we don't necessarily act on that. So in Matthew, if we look at some of the examples of practical faith, perhaps we can see um, what he means. In Matthew 8 to 10, we get the story of the centurion who wants his servant to be healed. So he sends someone to Jesus and says, can you heal my servant? Um, no, you don't even need to come. Just issue the word because you can command like that. In Matthew 9, verse 2, um, we get the story of the paralyzed man who's brought by his four friends to Jesus and they cut a hole in somebody's roof and they lower this guy down to Jesus to be healed. So their faith had real consequences. They didn't just believe Jesus could do it. They were willing to go out of their way and act on that belief. In Matthew 9, 22, we have the woman who touches Jesus' cloak to be healed from her um, flow of blood. She not only believed Jesus could do it, she went out of her way, she fought through a crowd to get close enough so she could act on that belief. In Matthew 9, 29, we find blind men who have faith that Jesus can heal them. They needed to get their way to Jesus and ask to be healed. 
So they needed to act on their belief. And it would have been very difficult for the blind men to actually get in the way of Jesus to be healed. Matthew 15, 28, we have the Gentile woman whose daughter is healed when she tells Jesus that even the dogs can eat um, the crumbs that fall from the, from the table. So in Matthew, to have faith is to act on it, to put things into place, relying on, on God to be able to do that. But how do we pray without doubt? How do we, how do we get that level of certainty about um, what we believe God can do and whether we believe he's in line with that? Well, the best quote I found as I, as I cruised various commentaries on this was from a guy called Mayer was an evangelist in the late 1800s and uh, he suggests that we can only pray without doubt when we are in perfect sympathy and understanding with God. So in order to, to get our prayers to the point where we can be certain that they'll be answered, we need to try and find ways to become more and more in touch with God, whether that's through Bible reading, meditation, fasting, however we need to do it. But as we get more and more in touch with God, prayers like the one I prayed when I was younger about winning lotteries disappear because I understand that that's not part of God's kingdom. It's just something that I wanted. Um, we understand when it's just, um, yeah, I guess our, my will and what I want. If we increase our oneness with Christ, the likelihood that we'll be praying as into, into God's will is much more certain and if we're praying into God's will we can be certain that he's going to answer it. The other way we can um, pray without doubt is where we can pray with two or more people and if we're all aligned on the prayers, if we're all certain that this is God's will, then we're more likely to be praying in God's will and we're more likely to be able to pray without doubt because if there's two or more people, because God's made us all different, because we're part of a body and we all have different outlooks and different abilities to see and different understandings we can actually criticize one another help each other understand that we're just you know maybe that's just a bit selfish john you don't seem to understand you know maybe you're, you're seeking more of your own glory than you are god's glory in that prayer um that'd be some interesting conversations to have i guess in a prayer meeting uh, when people are asking to pray but um there's certainly things that we need to consider uh, when I used to use, lead youth group, occasionally I'd get people asking me to pray that they did really well in the HSC. And sometimes I could pray those prayers and I was sure God would answer them, but other times I couldn't actually pray them because in some instances, the ones I could pray for, I knew that the reason they hadn't studied was because they'd been about God's business. Maybe there'd been some disaster in youth group and they'd spent time with someone helping them study rather than studying them for themselves or whatever, so I could pray that God would honour their sacrifices. Other people asked me because they were just covering their bets. They hadn't studied all year. They hadn't done the work. They were just hoping God would give them a, a magic pass out. So I had to say to them I couldn't pray that for them. Um, they were always interesting conversations. So we need to align what we're praying with God's will. But the fig tree also had additional meaning, as we found when Luke represents the fig tree as a parable. He's explaining the meaning a little bit more. We know that it has this meaning because it's closely linked to the temple cleansing. And um, 
it's in, it appears, and we know it's important because it appears in three Gospels. So they all thought that this was a very important illustration. So in Luke, he explains that the fig tree represents Israel, and we assume the same identification here in Matthew and Mark. Jesus is saying that Israel, or God's people, should have had fruit by now. They've been God's people for a long time, around about 2,000 years at this stage, and they should have had fruit by now. But because they don't, they're being rejected, which is actually fortunate for us as Gentiles. If Israel hadn't been rejected, we might have been left out in the cold. But when often in the past when I've heard about this, this parable preached, it's very much a, it's narrowed down to me that uh, Christians need to have fruit, and if we don't have fruit, God will reject us. People are very non-specific about what that fruit is, um, but it's usually implied that the fruit is all about leading people to Christ. I'd like to suggest that that fruit might also be the things Kim talked about in her uh, illustration this morning, the, um, the, the peace, the love, the joy, the fruits of the spirit could also be representing as that fruit. I encountered someone many years ago who believed that the fruit was to have lots of kids. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I don't really think that's a, a valid um, interpretation. But I'd like to also argue that the fig tree doesn't, isn't just about looking at ourselves. It's actually more targeted at a group of people. It's targeted at Israel. We tend to isolate God's words down often to ourselves because in our culture, it's all about me. Look at me. What can I do? What is my sin? In, in the Bible, we find lots of points where the Bible talks about the sin of a group of people, the sin of Israel not necessarily the sin of individuals. We don't tend to look at that too much. Um, so I'd like, to, I'd like to consider this from a point of view as, as a group, as a church. Now, this is not because I think at, at this particular point it's anything special about our church or any big disaster. Um, I think as a regular thing, groups of Christians need to look at the way they act and the way they interact with the community and decide if they're going the way that God wants them to do. We need to constantly re be reviewing because cultures change. We change. We grow older. We have different abilities and different gifts at different times. And sometimes that means we need to change the way we do things. The way we did things 20 years ago might not be all that relevant now. I remember uh, one of my first exposures to evangelism was working in a coffee shop that um, my parents ran because at the time, 40 years ago, no, no, more than that, oh, dear me, um, 45 years ago or so, that was the way you did it. And you'd, you'd, you'd put pillows on the floor and you'd play some music and people would come in and you'd all sit around and talk and occasionally you'd get to talk about Christ and occasionally you wouldn't. But over the years that became less relevant. It's not the sort of things people did. So we need to find different ways of interacting. So if we're talking about groups of people, if we're looking at how does this parable relate to us as a church, us as a group of Christians, where do we go? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament and investigate how Israel 
what God was expecting from Israel because he will expect similar things from us as we are now his people. So in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, we read, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So what are priests? If this is what God's people were supposed to be, what is a priest? A priest is a mediatory agent between humans and a holy God. So if you wanted to communicate with a holy God, you went through a priest and they guided you through that relationship. He wanted them to be a holy nation, one set apart specially for God, not necessarily living the same way as the people around them. I think for, the, for us, God wants us to be the same. He wants us to be the priests. He wants us to be the link between people and God. He wants us to be set apart. He doesn't want us to live necessarily the same way as the people around them. When people look at me, do they see someone who's living differently or do they just see someone who's slightly different but mostly the same as them? Unfortunately, I think as I've gotten older, um, I've become more of a, I'm more of a, the same as the people around me. I remember a long time ago being young and being told that I was, I was way too serious about God. I obviously lived enough differently that they thought I was a bit of a fanatic. Nicest thing anyone said about me was that I was a bit of a God fanatic. Unfortunately, I don't think anyone would say that anymore because I've, yes, watered down my life, I guess, got older. Don't know. I'm not, I'm not setting myself up as an example of what to do, probably more what not to do in this area. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God wanted his people to be dependent on him. And as I think he wants the same from us today. Are we dependent on God? And is it obvious that that's who we're depending on? Or are we trying to depend on our own strength and our own resources? So I think as a regular part of being a church, we need to look at ourselves and say, how are we going in areas that are important to God? And that will take a bit of effort because as people, we tend to be open to deceiving ourselves. Um, we tend to justify our actions. We find excuses for our failures. Um, and I guess as Australians, we often find it difficult to say positive things about ourselves. I'm certainly guilty of that. Um, if anyone asks me, I will always find the things we're not doing right first. And maybe if I'm really, really lucky, find one good thing at the end of the, the list. Because that's who I am. Constant frustration to Nathan. He sometimes wonders how I deal with life. But uh, anyway, we need to look at it as a church, not just as individuals. If we look at Revelations 2 and 3, we find... There's a passage that reflects on churches as a whole, not as individuals, 
we have seven examples of churches that um, the writer of Revelations commented on or the angels commented on. We have Ephesus. They've got a good reputation. They've got a great history, but they have forsaken their first love. They don't do the things they started doing when they first came to belief. Sounds like they got comfortable, um, set in their ways, and they seem to have forsaken Jesus in order to, when that's happened. Uh, Sumerian uh, was afflicted. They're poor, and, and the angel says their persecu persecutions are going to get worse. But the angel commends them because they've held close to their faith despite all that, despite not being successful or rich. Uh, Permig, no, I can't pronounce that. Some start with P. Um, they've survived their um, persecutions faithfully and remained faithful during strong persecution, but they didn't reject the heretics that live among them. And gradually those heretics have taken them away from God. Thyantria started strong. They're going strong, but they tolerate a heretic. The passage even says that they're not accepting her teachings, but they tolerate her in their midst. Sardis, they've got a reputation for being alive, but as far as God's concerned, they're dead, for their deeds of faith remain unfinished. They started works of faith which they couldn't finish. Philadelphia, they have little strength, but they're commended for keeping his word and haven't denied his name no matter what's happened. And Laodicea, which is a bit of, I guess, the one that is the most concerning for people in the Western culture, they're rich and successful. They've got all the trappings of being successful, but they're poor in God's sight, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked because they haven't stored up the appropriate treasures in heaven. There's a church in the West. It's easy for us, it's easy for us to appear um, rich and successful. I reflect on some of the churches that um, are available in the Philippines. My wife's uh, brother-in-law is a pastor of a church that for about five years just literally couldn't pay him. And the amount of uh, troubles that he and his wife had as they dealt with not enough food but still trying to run this church, by all, all accounts, they were unsuccessful. It would have been easy to give up, but they still keep going and I think that church is still happening. Um, but, yeah, compared to churches in the West where it's relatively easy to appear successful, um, we generally have enough money for most things. The question we need to ask ourselves, are we poor in God's sight? I don't necessarily know the answer for this, and I know that reflecting on this would probably take a lot of time. It's not something you could answer in a Sunday morning. We would need to pray about it. We would need to discuss it as a group and spend a long time looking at where we were as a church and listening to people who had views that we didn't necessarily agree with and try and understand where we really stood. So I know that uh, often we reflect on stories of the past. I love hearing Daryl and Pauline start talking about stories from the early days of St. Clair. What stands out to me is the ones that he gets most, that Daryl and Pauline get most excited about, the ones that talk about community involvement. I mean, the door knocking of the neighbourhood, they would take their kids around knocking on doors, inviting people to church. Um, it's great to see their excitement. To me, that sort of thing would terrify me. 
not really uh, keen on door knocking. I mean, I rarely talk to my neighbours who I see semi-regularly. Um, anyway, but they also also beach camp and snow trips, which to be fair, I guess, were a lot because Daryl likes having a lot of fun, but also because they wanted to involve the friends of the church's kids in church and contact them and give them an opportunity to be involved in the church and maybe decide to come to youth group and be exposed to God's word. We don't do a lot of that stuff anymore. Some of that's because we don't have, did, haven't had for a while too many church kids, um, so they didn't have too many friends. Some of it's because it got hard, got difficult to do all that stuff. We've got all this extra safe churches and child protection stuff we've got to do. You've got to do risk assessments for every single thing. It's awkward to find buses. It's, uh, yeah, lots of reasons we don't do it anymore, and some of them are good reasons. Some of them are just because we've changed. Maybe those ways of relating aren't relevant anymore. I don't know. But we, how do we want to involve in the community that we find ourselves in? Perhaps one of the best avenues we might have for community involvement is the connection to the Ush. Um, when Greater West took over the childcare, they didn't want to take it. They're not, their real interest isn't in just providing childcare. They want to use it. And uh, Kathy, who's in charge of the Ush, wants to use it to connect into the community through the, through the families that use the childcare. We need to look at, see how we can be involved in that. They want us involved. Now, sometime over the next week, you'll get an email um, from me showing some of the ideas that they had about how we could be involved. Um, it'll include an idea that I've had, and it'll be asking for ideas that you might have as how we in the church can leverage our connection with the Ush leverage our connection with the chaplains on how we can make, how we can get better involved with the St. Clair communities. So that when people want to um, form a relationship with God, they will know that they can come through us, that we can have the opportunity to be priests. It may also present opportunities for people to find people of peace that they can share the Bible with. I'm not saying that that will happen, or that will happen quickly, but I believe that if we expose ourselves to people, those opportunities will arise for people. And I think we need to be seeking out ways to be involved in the community. Um, maybe the issue isn't the best way, but we need to be working at what is, what works for us, and what can we, what, how can we invest in community in a way that exposes them to God and lets them know that we are Christians. Hopefully, from my point of view, without door knocking, but maybe there's a couple of you who think that that's the way to go. And that's fine, and we don't all have to be the same. We now get to the last part of the uh, passage, which is the awkward question that Jesus asks the Pharisees. So it's good to know that Jesus occasionally dealt with people who are trying to trap him, and he didn't necessarily feel the need to play their games and be super polite to them. So we know the Pharisees are upset. We know they're trying to trap Jesus. So they ask him a question. And they say, well, what authority are you doing these things? What authority, what gives you the right to throw people out of the temple? What gives you the right to um, bring the blind and the lame into the temple when we've said that they don't belong there? So Jesus um, asks them a question back, which is a typical 
debating strategy that the Pharisees used. You, if you were asked a question, you could ask a you could ask a question back to them, and they were required to answer that too. So Jesus is trying to gauge their competence to judge such an issue. Now it's important to remember that Jesus' question: Who is the? Um, where did the authority for, for John's baptism come from? To the people around Jesus, except for the Pharisees, the answer was really obvious. And the Pharisees' reasoning indicates they knew it was political suicide. There was no right answer. So they think thought they'll get clever. We'll just say, we don't know. Jesus then refuses to play the game. His answer points out that he doesn't accept that they didn't know. They must answer, or he's and he's so he's not going to bother. It's comforting to know that we'll often account for people who try and bait us because of our Christian beliefs, beliefs. They'll come up with many things, and we can know after a while that they actually don't, our answers are irrelevant. They're only trying to trap us into things or into a pointless argument that'll go on for many, many days or many, many typings backwards and forwards. We can refuse to enter into such pointless arguments if we want. We're not required to be polite all the time. We're not required to always answer those questions. I mean, ideally, we'll have some clever answer for the situations which will help put it back on them, but we're not always as up there and in touch with things what Jesus was. But sometimes we don't need to waste our time. Like one of the popular questions when I was going through university that they would try and get you in on was, can God create a rock so big that he cannot lift it? Uh, what's the point of this question? Where does it go? No, we don't need to play that game. We can just leave it. Uh, it's, not a, it's not actually a valid question. So I guess I'd like to leave it today with uh, just the suggestion that we start reflecting on where, we're, where we are at, at, a, at a church, as a church, maybe as a point of discussion for the different groups that meet from the church, and how can we do better? How can we generate more fruit um, for God? Because he does expect us to be generating fruit um, of one form or another, both individually and as a group. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, um, either via email or I guess the chat will come up once I get rid of this screen that's got my notes on it um, and I can look at that. So that's me. I'm finished. Thanks, Mel.